Hello, and welcome to the Revenue Marketing Report powered by Caliber Minds. On this show, we try to move marketers from tactical to more strategic. I'm your host, Kamala Thompson, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Andy Graham. Andy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Kamala. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Andy Graham. I'm the CEO at Big C. We are a 40-person marketing agency that I started in 2005. We were doing inbound before inbound was cool or named inbound. So that's sort of where we came from. We've been doing in the content marketing space, working with clients in regional and national nonprofits, a lot of foundation work, and a lot of museums and cultural institutions across the U.S. I love this so much because once I left revenue operations, my heart went to content marketing and all things related. And it's just such a fun area to work in. But somebody I was talking to said this really Well, messaging is something that needs to appeal to someone with zero context. And a lot of marketers struggle with coming up with that messaging because they have all the context. Even before that, we have to figure out exactly who our customer is. What are the things that feed into determining that persona profile? That's a great question. I talk about this a lot because I get very frustrated when our clients come to us with their personas that they've developed using some template where they just fill in the boxes based on 99% of the time assumptions that they make about folks, right? Or perhaps it's based on some data that they've got somewhere and they've bought a list somewhere and they've tried to find some maybe demographic data and every now and then a little bit of psychographic data that they can find about a person particular persona, but it's pretty rare. So 99% of the time people use assumptions. And I'm here to tell you that there is a much easier way to find out who you're actually selling to. And that is quite simply just to ask them. You are in, I know it's groundbreaking. It's crazy. Who might think, but the truth is you can start with the data and you can start with list buying if you need to, or you can start digging into groups that you can find on LinkedIn, Facebook, Reddit is a wealth of finding out about the community that you want to market towards after you make your assumptions, of course, but then you can start actually asking folks, how do you make decisions about these things? Where are you finding these things? What are you reading? There's tools like spark Toro now that we can dig in to to see what sort of media people are interacting with, what they're listening to, what podcasts they're engaging with, where they spend their time online. There's really just no excuse anymore for not really digging into who your customer is. And the truth is we all know somebody in our target market that we can just reach out to and ask. I totally agree because what I see happen way too often is we rely on the executive team or a few key salespeople who've done well, and they're going to remember the last most positive thing to happen to them because recency bias is real. And it may be some fluke and not a representation of the majority of their um, bread and butter deals. So... Why does promotion, this is such a simple question, but I think people miss this point. Why is persona so essential to developing a message that works? I would suggest it's always been essential, but it's more essential now as we've all factioned into our little micro communities and communities on the internet, right? So we all live in our own little worlds and our own little bubbles and the language that we use is very different. And I love to talk about one of our first clients in the universe was an aromatherapy education platform that we built the learning management system for and then helped her grow her business. 
And it, I used to get so frustrated when I was very new in what I was doing, when I would send her messaging and she would correct all of the words that I was sending over. And she'd say, we just don't talk like that, Andy. And I thought, but that's good English. That's the best grammar. This is how we're supposed to speak. And she said, no, this is not how we talk about these things. This is not the language we use. And so as a very base, we have to learn the language that our customers are using or they'll see through us right away, right? So we want to be as authentic as we can, but we also want to truly show that we understand our customer by using the language they use to talk about their own lives and choices and behaviors as well. But then number two is we can then align what our products or services do or are toward the needs and wants and desires of our, of our, of our buyers, right? And what is, yeah, what good is a product or service if we don't actually solve problems for somebody that we're trying to sell it to? So building a better product is one opportunity, but also then selling that product and knowing who to talk to and when to talk to and not wasting our time with blanket or mass marketing messaging that does doesn't speak to anybody individually. Yeah. And I see a lot of tech companies starting with features and what differentiates them on a very, very technical, tactical level. And they forget that the key person they're catering to isn't oftentimes isn't a technical buyer and doesn't care. <laughs> they just, yeah. they want to know if you solve the problem they have, which you haven't stated in your copy. Yep. And then they'll have somebody technical come in and verify that. Do you see that happening in tech at all? all the time in tech. So I'm on the sales side and often I'm the first phone call that people have when they're even trying to buy tech from us, when we're building websites, we're building platforms for them and they come in and they're just asking questions about, can we do this? And don't, if I were to launch immediately into, well, this API doesn't integrate with this API, I've lost them on this call, right? So I've got to make sure that I'm talking about the thing that they care about the most before we move any farther down that, down that stage. So Seth Godin wrote in 2012, I just, well, I just found this recently. I've been following him for a very long time, but he said, the only way to do great customer service is to treat different customers differently. And I just think that's like such a strong statement because we, it's true, right? That was 2012. We're even more fractioned now, but if we aren't treating customers the way that they want to be spoken to, listened to, you know, interacted with all of those things, what platforms are we using to communicate? If we're asking a client, for instance, we do this, so I shouldn't, I'm not ragging on us, but, you know, asking a client or a customer to log into an entirely new platform as the only means of communication that becomes problematic and asking them to change their lives, but we're not willing to change for them. Those are really tough business relationships because we're not fitting into their world and we need to fit into their world. Yeah. And the expectation for how quickly people respond when they're available is completely changed. I remember back in the day, a day was long enough to follow up on a form fill that, that really doesn't, they want to be chatting to someone live and not in a lot of cases talking to them, <laughs> at least initially. Have you seen that in your work as well? I actually believe pretty strongly that we are allowed to set our own boundaries. And I think that by having a live chat on your website, you are acquiescing to that level of commitment to conversation and communication. And if you can't follow that up, if you're able to do that in the sales process and not able to do that in the customer support or customer experience side of the business, it's probably going to be a little bit of a mismatch and a little bit of a letdown of expectations. So I would say that 
we find it best to set those expectations up front on, I actually, when somebody form fills on our website, especially if it's a new project reach out, I actually have this kind of pitchy email that we send out that say, Hey, you've taken the first step, you know, something like you've swiped right. Or is it left? I don't even know. Cause I don't use those apps, but yeah, you've chosen us. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit of, you've chosen us, you've gotten to know us, but now we want to get to know you. So can you give us a day or two to do a little bit of research and background information before we reach out and schedule the first meeting? So I think that we can, I think that the most important part is setting clear communications around, around communication expectations and timing expectations. But I do think that the world is backing a little bit up from the hustle culture and becoming a little bit more structured around communication boundaries and especially timing boundaries. Yeah, quid pro quo, Clarice. I just dated mm -hmm. myself, and there's a bunch of young people yeah. listening to that going, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic, and I'm not even going to say which movie that was. So when we were talking earlier about figuring out who your key personas are, let's dig into this a little bit. So I'm a huge fan of blending art and science or giving context mm -hmm. and, and business knowledge layered on top of data. What is the risk of solely looking at data and using that to base um, your persona decisions? Well, the worst thing that comes out of using solely data is that 95% of people who come work with us have really bad data. It's been, it's very I messy. would argue it's probably 100% and those 5% <laughs> just don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with that. There's some folks that have, I, I will say, we, we work with some really smart marketing directors who know how, have already gone in and sort of sorted through those things. But for the most part, their data is really bad. It's very messy. It has very little governance. So there's things that have been added and compiled for years and years and years. The, I mean, just looking at a sales database, for instance, how many of those leads actually still exist in the roles that they were at when you gathered that data? Probably very few. Yeah. Yeah. We've so, all heard of the great resignations, a swap. I don't know what else you want to call it, but it's not a knock on marketers. It's the fact that data goes stale extremely quickly. And even Salesforce mm -hmm. says 90% of data is either stale or missing. Yeah. So even if you're enriching it, it doesn't mean it's, it's great. Yeah, it's exactly right. And you know, Info USA is not chasing every human around the internet looking for where they're where they are now and what they're doing now. But the truth is that, like, even as businesses and B two B, you're working with humans to humans, and so understanding what's important to me as a buyer versus important to Joe Smith down the street are two very different situations, even though we might be buying the very same product. And so knowing that I'm a busy mom who's on my way to soccer practice and I'm going to be reading an email in the grocery checkout line while I'm trying to get the gift for my kid's student teacher for tomorrow's thing versus Joe, who's a single guy in his twenties, he's going to go gaming with his buddies after work. And his interaction with that email is going to be in a very different place and space and, and mindset. Just being able to make decisions around those things when you're creating content from a marketing perspective and also from a sales perspective. So knowing what's important to people and how they, how they use their time and where they spend their time is, is really important just so we don't, we're not wasting our time. I think the second problem with using just data is sometimes we rely so heavy on, heavily on it that we forget that the intuitive 
creative decisions we're making are often far more interesting. I, I think everybody's now heard about the cherry Sprite scenario where they relied on all the data, you know, the Coke free form product, the, the Coke machines where you can mix all your own flavors. They discovered that most people were mixing cherry into their Sprite. And so they decided to launch ready for it. Cherry Sprite as if cherry seven up hasn't been on the shelves for the past 30 years. It would have been a far cheaper endeavor to just intimidate one of their competitors and say, hey, that looks like a cool idea. Let's try it. But instead, they waited for all of this data to come in and the project's been a flop, right? So there's why, you know, those sorts of things you realize are possible with data, but not always the best approach to approach to using the data. So I heard you say, ask customers. Salespeople tend to be very protective of the people they're working with, and they don't necessarily like to share because they're afraid marketing's going to create a landmine that they'll have to undo. I get it, but how can we get access to people? Have you seen tactics that work with the sales team? We are fond of simply asking, but first of all, we work with, we try to farm from a pool of existing clients who have a little bit of longevity first and foremost, so we can get the cadence down. But the other thing we do is we'll build questions into the sales process and we'll build questions into the profiling process when they're filling out forms online. So we can start getting trickles of little interesting behavioral or decision-making data before we have to get into the conversations piece. We're also a fan of having, and I know this is very time consuming, but if there's a somebody of a higher level position that has a little bit more gravitas and can say, hey, we're just doing client interviews to find out how we can better serve you. Those are far more uh, rewarding, useful, and also re responded to than a simple blanket email of we're going to give you a $5 Starbucks gift card if you fill out this survey sort of a situation. People don't love to self-report on surveys. It's not a lot of, they, they are a lot of aspirational answers versus actual and so getting to the why in, in actual interviews, which don't have to be done, they can be done professionally by marketing agencies or research firms or whatever it is. But the truth is, if you've got a VP of client experience or a VP of customer success, those are the people who should be making those phone calls and having those conversations. We make it a, a rolling practice. So it's happening, you know, we're doing three to five a, a month, depending on the scale of the organization, whatever that looks like, and constantly pulling new data. Yeah. And in smaller companies, uh, like we're participating in helping organize and run the customer advisory board. Like you said, a lot of times that falls yeah. under a VP of customer experience, but it's it behooves marketing to volunteer their services and try to participate as much as possible because then you have some say on what goes on the agenda. Yeah, for sure. It's um it's a weird com the conversation and I the conversation between sales and marketing can often be difficult. Um, they're often competing for similar resources and don't believe that one understands the other, but they're both aiming for the same goals. So it seems it's just insane to me that we can't, you know, have a tighter relationship and understand how we can be sharing information back and forth and talking to each other. I've, I've talked to some really smart companies who actually record all of their sales calls and the marketing team, marketing teams do audits of those and listen to those on a frequent basis. I love that. It's really time consuming, but wow, is that an eye opener into the questions they're asking. And that really helps with content marketing and, and value production as well. Yeah. If you can afford that technology, it's great. And take the time to dig into it. I see a lot of people invest really early on and then not touch it. There has to be a lot of intent behind that purchase. <laughs> 
So let's talk a little bit about, we talked about personas. Let's talk about personality and branding because we don't always see it in B2B. And I think it's kind of a, a miss personally, but where do you stand on that? Oh, I think it's a huge miss personally. We work with a huge variety of clients and the far worst performing are those who try to be all things to all people and not try to, you don't want to rock any boats. You just want to be as vanilla as possible, which makes for very vanilla content and very vanilla results. Mediocre at best. I think the biggest, boldest brands who have the most sassy or endearing or, you know, crazy personalities are the folks who get noticed. And that's across any brand. One of the content marketers I admire the most is Tyler from PandaDoc. I follow him on LinkedIn and their content is so cheeky and so fun. And for such a stale product, right? We're just doing digital signatures in a SaaS product. There are many, many, many competitors, but somehow he's made it engaging and fun and exciting to interact with the content that they're producing on a regular basis. And so slowly, as I'm just interested in what he's doing, I'm constantly learning more and more and more about this product. And now it is hundred percent top of mind when I'm thinking about, you know, online signature products. So he's doing a really great job. And I think that that's been part of the brand's decision to allow him to build that personality and to bring that to the table. But having a perspective is so important. Having opinions is so important. You're here as an expert. You should absolutely have opinions on the things going on in your world. Yeah, I think people are really afraid of being polarizing, but I think we've seen very prominent examples over and over again that, that, <laughs> that often pays off for better or worse. Mm -hmm. Yep. Panda doc. Love that example. Are there any other examples you can think of where they've really dialed in personalization and personality? When I first started talking about this topic, I started thinking about, cause I, I, I read a lot about AI and obviously in marketing AI is a big topic right now because it's, we've gone far beyond automation and very deeply into actual content production and image production and things like that. And it's, it's not a great scene right now. You know, AI is not beautiful, but it's not far from being so. I mean, it's going to continually improve. And so we have to pay attention to what's going on in that space. But I will say one of the things that I think was really neat that is what's going on in the streaming world and the ability of Netflix, Hulu, et cetera, what they've done to constantly serve you content that you're interested in by just watching your browsing behavior and your, your viewing behavior. It's such a simple thing that I feel so seen when I log into my Netflix portal that websites can be doing with the same information, but we don't do it, but it's all possible. We just don't have MarTech, exec, MarTech professionals who have yet understood how to I think use that across their entire web properties. One of the things we love HubSpot for is its ability to do personalization. I talk about when we do higher ed marketing, we work with a lot of universities. We, if we're doing campaigns specifically for non-traditional students, so students who are usually second career, going back to school, they've got working kids at home. They want to see other students who look like them. They don't want to see a campus full of co you know, co-eds, 18 year olds, 19 year olds, 20 year olds walking around. And so we can actually use 
smart content on HubSpot-based landing pages and websites to change out the photos that we see that we have showing on the website so it looks a little bit more like something they relate to because that's also the truth in the campus. There are those communities as well right across campus. And so there's a lot of opportunities for doing things like that. You can do those in emails. You can do those in you know written emails, visuals, all of those different things. HubSpot allows for a lot of that stuff. So how about closed opportunity interviews. I've seen some success with that. Do you recommend, I think you said something about the VP of customer success, like who ideally runs that interview and what kind of information are you trying to get out of the company you're interviewing? Yeah, for us, we're usually asking a few things. We're asking who else were you evaluating in this if you're willing to share, right? So we can understand who our competitors are. And then there's really the basic questions of like, what about us made you make this choice? So we ask those things, which are the basics, but we also ask like, what are you most afraid of in this relationship? And what was the fear that you were coming into this decision with? What were you afraid of if you chose A, B, or C of these different competitors so that we can speak to those things, obviously, in our messaging in the future? And then the question of, you know, what actually pushed you over the edge, I think is really important. Was it, you know, what was it in these phone calls or in these conversations that was really important? to you. I think that knowing how you deliver value to your clients is really, really important because a lot of times the thing you think you're selling is not what they're buying. And so getting that alignment through those conversations can help as well. And sometimes that's better with clients who've been around for a while where you think you sold them X, but they're no, we're, we're, you're selling X. You think you're selling X, but what we're getting from it is Y. So um, I think those conversations can help with that alignment. That makes sense. And I've seen in companies when messaging isn't quite right, everybody goes and makes their own pitch deck, their own emails, their own materials. And what's often missing is the feedback loop to marketing to let them know that the messaging isn't working. Have you seen any strategies work that help that feedback loop along a little bit? It's a That's a basic in content governance, right? And so there's a lot of tools that you can use that save elevator pitches. Um, I actually am evaluating a tool now called Report that just came on the market and they're in beta and it's really neat. It integrates with the, your CRM and you can actually attach marketing collateral. So if somebody's using a case study or a pitch deck or various things, it'll track attachments. It'll track links in various sales emails through your Salesforce or HubSpot instance. And then it will report back on which deals closed and where they moved through the funnel based on which documents were attached and which sales collateral were, were used in those deals. So you can actually get an understanding of like, oh, this case study closed four deals last month. Like, let's focus on more case studies like this one, or this pitch deck keeps getting restructured and it's not selling anybody. Let's, you know, ditch the pitch deck or whatever that thing is that's not working. So I think that's a really neat tool that's coming out. We're just, we're literally onboarding to it next week so that we can play with it. Cause I think it'll be a really useful thing for our clients as well. No, I think, I think, you know, the only thing I have to share with the world, honestly, is to not forget that we all make decisions based on emotion and that emotion is how we connect with other humans. And so when we get so buried in data and so focused on the sales cadence and so focused on this features and benefits, we really lose that very short window that we have to connect with somebody in real life as a real human over simple things like, Hey, I've got a teenage daughter. Let's commiserate. Right. Cause we can all be on that same plane. 
So I think that, you know, removing, I feel like the world's moving into a place where humans are coming back into the picture. Um, I fear that, you know, automation tools like HubSpot, but a lot of them have sort of sucked the life out of it for a little while. But I, I think humans are coming back into that picture. And I think we'd be best served to lean into that and establish great relationships and really focus on our client experience through those relationships. Yes. Hopefully B2B marketers are listening closely because even if you're speaking <laughs> to a buyer committee, those are still individuals with, mm-hmm. you know, different family lives or not. And Living in different locations, having different interests. Yeah, yep. no, I totally agree with you. That's a fantastic point. Andy, where can people find you online to connect? Sure. My agency is Big C. It's B-I-G-S-E-A dot C-O. And then my personal site is andygram.co. And I do speaking and talking and writing a lot there as well. Wonderful. So for those of you listening to the podcast, if you enjoy it, please rate, review, subscribe, tell two friends. It does make a difference. And for those of you looking for more great content like this, check out calibermind.com. 